Hello and welcome to the Biggest Questions podcast. I'm Jeffrey Stackert. And I'm Kevin Hector. And it's our pleasure to welcome today our guest Mira Kensky, who is the Joseph E. McCabe Associate Professor of Religion at Coe College in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. She's also an alumna of the University of Chicago. Uh, Mira, welcome to the Biggest Questions podcast. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, we're really glad that you're with us. Uh, we want to talk to you today about a topic that is really central to your research. It's one that I know you've been working on a lot recently, uh, and that is the topic of apocalyptic. In fact, uh, I know that uh, you are currently working on a new volume uh, with a very provocative title, or at <laughs> least uh, uh, plan title, uh, which is Go to Hell, uh, Vicarious Travel with Peter and Paul in Earliest Christianity. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, we're really excited to delve into this topic. Maybe we can start with a really basic question. Uh, tell us what you mean when we talk about apocalyptic. So it's a great question. So apocalyptic literature and apocalyptic movements are related, but not the same, right? So the word apocalypse comes from the Greek word um, apokalyptein, which means to unveil or to reveal. And apocalyptic literature reveals things. It reveals things, some would say about the future, but really what apocalyptic literature reveals, it reveals things about the present to the people who are reading it. Right, so when people are looking at apocalyptic literature, they're reading apocalyptic literature, they're not only reading about the end of time, right, which a lot of people think apocalypse means the end of time. They're not only reading about that, they're reading about learning about how to interpret the world that they're in right now. Like what is really going on? Where is it going? How should I understand it? And what do I need to do in the, in the mean meantime? And apocalyptic movements, this kind of literature that emerges, really started emerging in a crisis, in crisis periods, in periods where there was a lot of cognitive dissonance, where people felt that the world was not right somehow, that there was a real sense of real or perceived injustice. You know, the wicked people were prospering, people who were supposedly doing all the right things were suffering. I mean, it really threatened a worldview, which understood, as we all, I think, kind of maybe hope that like good things should happen to good people and bad things should happen to bad people. And we know from our lived reality of the world that that's just not the case. And especially when apocalypticism emerged, it emerged at a period where people who were following the Jewish law and doing what they thought God wanted of them were really suffering as a result of it. And so there was a kind of, it was a threat to a traditional monotheistic ideology, which held that like God had given instructions and had a plan and people who, but now people who are following the plan, you know, we're really suffering. So apocalyptic literature really emerged to try to explain why people are suffering and what's going on in the present and how that relates to God's ultimate plan. Super interesting. So I, I have a, just a quick question about the, the subtitle about vicarious travel as it relates to this. So, yes. right. So one can easily see how this idea that we're going to peel back the, the, the sheen of irreality to see deeper and have a kind of unveiling of the, the truth. And especially why that would be important in crisis moments. Um, but you talk here specifically about vicarious travel. And right. so there's two things about this. One is why, how is travel different from just visions, which would be a different way of doing it? Or is it just a, a, a narrative kind of vision? And what's the vicariousness? What does vicariousness add to this? 
Right. So there are two types of apocalyptic literature, and, and really that's kind of an oversimplification, right? Basically, anything I say today is kind of an oversimplification, but I like to speak a little bit generally because I think it's, you know, easier and less boring. Okay. So <laughs> there are two basic types of apocalyptic literature. Um, and one of them is the kind of otherworldly journeys, right? Otherworldly journeys. Um, and so in particular, we have these apocalypses that are written about, you know, in a, in a broad period of time, right? Not necessarily confined to one period, but are written about figures maybe known to us from the Bible or from canonical works, things that are in the canon, who are taken and given extraordinary revelations on these otherworldly journeys. Um, and the earliest example of this is Enoch, right? The book of Enoch is not in the Hebrew Bible, but it seemed to be super popular. Right, super popular. There are copies of it in the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, or I should say copies of a textual version of it because there's many different textual versions of it. And Enoch, is, it's very long. It's a very long book. It's something like 150 chapters. It's very, very long. But Enoch is taken on these journeys of the different like cosmic heavens, and he sees like deep pits where people are being punished and et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there's this like these journeys. And this journey literature in particular became very popular. And in early Christianity, you have these apocalyptic journeys being undertaken in this literature by like Peter, right, and Paul. And in particular, I'm looking at these in my research. Um, and I say, I'm doing this as if I've been able to do anything since last summer on this. But the realities <laughs> of this year have been that research has kind of been on hold. But I'm looking at these texts, the Apocalypse of Peter and the Apocalypse of Paul, which are otherworldly journeys to hell, right? And the Apocalypse of Peter in particular is kind of fascinating because we know that this text was read out loud in church at least once a year in Palestine, right? And maybe elsewhere, but we definitely know that because of the witness, you know, what we know from ancient sources. So the idea that you're sitting in church, you know, which are sitting in community, and this was happening through the fifth century, right? So this was happening for a long time. You're sitting and, you know, like kind of going through this journey vicariously with Peter as a group in church, in a ritual setting, it kind of became very fascinating to me. Like, what does it mean to go on kind of this kind of like group field trip, right? Where you, and the text is taking you here. Here I saw this, I saw this, to the left here, to the right here, right? It uses the kind of, uh, descriptions of place and location in order to put you in the action. So I came really fascinated about this idea of traveling through literature, right? And this is where this idea of vicarious travel comes from, this idea of traveling through literature. And so what I'm doing in the book is trying to piece out how other ancient travel narratives kind of take readers along on their journeys. What are the sort of rhetorical techniques that they use to do that? How do they like engage the readers as they're doing it? And then how does that, what does that mean when it comes to apocalyptic literature where you're going to really crazy places that you cannot go to in real life, right? You can't physically go there. Can I ask you about that? I'm, yeah. I'm struck by, uh, you know, like you say, these are crazy places you can't go to in real life. And these are attempts, uh, as you also said, to comment on the present. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a kind of, you know, discontinuity there, but there's also all of this detail, like you said, here on the left, here on the right, uh, so can you tell us a little bit about, you know, that kind of incongruity and those details and what they do for 
these travel narratives, these apocalyptic texts? Because what they're seeing in these places that they're going to has direct bearing on what their actual lives are in the real world, right? So for example, in the Apocalypse of Paul, which was a super popular medieval text, um, Dante had knows of this text, you know, and was inspired by it. Well, I don't know if he was inspired by it. I don't know Dante personally, but like definitely um, like talks about it, right? The Apocalypse of Paul, like you're seeing people get punished for very precise things that are happening in your world. Right, very specific things about, you know, maybe incorrect Christian ritual, right? Incorrect Christian thought, like not just moral, like here's where the murderers are, right? But here's where the people who didn't do Eucharist right are, right? So you're seeing these people like and have a direct bearing on what their actual life is like. So that when you go back, from the vision, right? When you go back from the journey, you can see your own world differently and you can kind of read it differently and understand it differently. And with the Apocalypse of Paul, I think there's actually, and I don't wanna give anything away because I think I might've come up with this. So I'm not <laughs> saying anything about it today, just in case, but like, I think there are moments where you can actually see, okay, this is what the reader is, this is the transformative experience they're supposed to have. And here's how it's represented inside or embedded into the text itself. So I don't think it's really incongruous. Like you're going to a place that you can't reach normally, like even if you wanted to, but it's telling you how to interpret the world that you're in when you can reach it, like the normal world. So I think that's what's really going on is that it's, it's a kind of a, a hermeneutic or a way of interpreting, like it's an entry, entry point into a way of interpreting the real world and unveiling the true nature, right? To get back that apocalypse literature, revealing or unveiling the true nature of the present, the true nature of what's going on. So that's that's fascinating. Thank you for this so far. Um, I'm wondering about what record we have of the uptake of these. Uh, and I have two aspects of the question. On the one hand, I think they're related, I hope. Uh, on the one hand, do we have a record of how contemporaneous communities read these and then read their situation in light of these, or do we just have the apocalypses to go on? And on the other side of it, and I think this is related, I hope it's related. I wonder about the fact that the apocalypses you mentioned are non-canonical. Right. And it seems like, I mean, it's too, it's hasty to draw an inference too large from this, but I wonder what that tells us about either canonicity or what that tells us about apocalypse as genre, right? Why this kind of thing would be, I mean, obviously we have one canonical apocalypse and we have one, um, we have a Pauline um, apocalypse, but it's it's in miniature, right? right? It's in not Second Corinthians whole... 10 through 12. That's what right, it's right. spelled, right? Mm -hmm. So in any case, I would just be interested to hear you say a little bit more about the uptake, both on the side of how people actually applied these things to their contemporary circumstances and why is it that these don't, they seem less likely to become canonical or maybe that's just- Well, to begin with, Kevin, we have two canonical apocalypses, right? Because we also have Daniel in the Hebrew Bible, which is also an apocalypse. It's not an otherworldly journey apocalypse. It's a dream, it's basically a, a dream interpretation apocalypse. But Dan, Daniel is definitely the, the, most, the earliest canonical example of apocalyptic literature. And then you also have apocalyptic teaching in other parts of the Bible. 
Like Jesus is an apocalyptic creature. John the Baptist is an apocalyptic creature. Paul is an apocalyptic creature. And they draw oh, on sure. a lot of these imagery, right? When they're talking in the various places where we have them. So I don't think it's quite right to say that that it's apocalypses are non-canonical exactly. Um, I do like to remind my students that the canon is like, it's in some ways it's like the world's greatest popularity contest. Like what, how the Bible, what like happened to get the books in the Bible is that enough people had to like the book, think it was important, copy it, give it to a friend who in turn copied it and gave it to a friend, right? And this process happened very organically. Unlike, I think a lot of people think that there was like a Bible committee, right? That was like, let's decide these books. Yes, these books, no. And like a Jesus seminar kind of way with the marbles or whatever. Um, and that just didn't happen. Like it was, it was just a ground up situation. So more like and ancient social media? This is like yes, ancient Facebook. Like ancient, ancient social network, right? This is the social network, absolutely. And now at a certain point, there was some sort of committee and they were basically telling people after the fact what to read and not to read, right? After the fact, but they couldn't kind of get rid of anything. The only person who successfully managed to get rid of books out of a canon is Martin Luther, right? Like Martin Luther, you know, in the handbook to the New Testament and in his writings was like, these books that the Catholics believe in are not canonical, right? So the Bible kind of emerged in this way. Some texts emerged after, right? After there was kind of already an authoritative set of things that were circulating together, right? So like the Apocalypse of Paul, the Apocalypse of Peter, these books seem to have emerged, well, especially Apocalypse of Paul is later. Right. Apocalypse of Peter, though, was definitely around, at least in part in the second century, at least in part, like parts of it. And so there is an attempt to kind of exclude it. But fundamentally, and this is where I'm speaking very, very generally, these texts that made it into the canon seem to be better, like they're better written, they're more compelling. Mm -hmm. Right. And maybe that's just because they've been better preserved or have better scribes work on them. But a lot of texts that didn't make it into the canon are just not that good, um, hmm. fundamentally, or they're harder to understand, right? So I think apocalyptic literature is though, this idea of the imagined journeys of like the extra biblical lives of known biblical characters is also a kind of way to open up the Bible, uh, open up something mm -hmm. that's closed, right? So if you have this image, you have, like, for example, a, a really great apocalypse, even though it's not called an apocalypse, is the Testament of Abraham. The Testament of Abraham is a second temple Jewish text, um, which has Abraham on these otherworldly journeys, like looking down on earth and he goes through and he sees what happens in judgment after death. Like it's very much apocalyptic, even though it is called a Testament. The Testament of Abraham is a second temple Jewish text that was heavily edited by Christian scribes, right? So we don't know if there's like what parts are for, for sure Jewish and not Christian and what parts are definitely Christian, but it's been coming out of a, a tradition of scribal emendation and we know that from the manuscript variants of the textual tradition. This is a great way to open up the canon and use a figure, right, who's familiar to everyone to imagine other things, right? And so I think that some elements of apocalyptic literature lend themselves to that, this idea that like, well, what happened to Enoch when he got, when he walked with God? It says in the Bible, like he walked with God. What happened to Elijah when he got taken up to heaven? Oh, I know, let's write the apocalypse of Elijah. 
like and, and you know some people use the term like fan fiction to talk about that and i think that's helpful uh in that we know like, if you're thinking about fan fiction like you know okay like you might have written a very very compelling essay about you know this minor figure from harry potter but it's not canon right like it has mm -hmm. no authority in the grander harry potter world but it might be really meaningful to you and the people who read it and just because something's not in the canon doesn't mean it didn't have any authority either. All oh, right. So there are lots of really Christian authors who are writing lots of things who that are not in the canon, but are still very authoritative. So I actually wanted to follow up on on this point because you know I thought it was really interesting when you noted that some of this extra canonical literature uh, maybe isn't of the same quality. It's not as yeah. good uh, as some of the stuff that's in there. And that made me think a little bit more about, you know, something you were saying earlier in talking about uh, the inaccessible world that uh, is being traveled into uh, for these folks who are, you know, really interested in their accessible world, the one in which they're mm -hmm. living. And I wondered if it was important to, to think about this contrast of that other world versus quote unquote, the real world. It sounds like what you're saying is that this other world is just as real. Just as real. Just but as But you don't real. live in it. Or you, you might live, live in it, it. but you, you might not, you might live in it and you just don't know it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so there's a, there's a popular quality to some of this literature. Uh, like you say, maybe the quality itself is not as great as some of this canonical literature, but it's real. The ideas mm -hmm. are real uh, and they're useful uh, for thinking through some of these issues uh, like these issues of justice that you pointed mm -hmm. out. Justice in particular is very critical to apocalyptic literature, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and so yeah, that, that contrast, you know, even if the, the quality of the literature is maybe uh, you know, not as good all the time, uh, even though the world is inaccessible, it is real and the ideas you know, have, have purchase. Well, and this is why I think it's really helpful to think about reading communities, mm -hmm. right? An apocalyptic community, apocalyptic reading communities. And so when I teach apocalyptic literature, you know, I teach at a small liberal arts college where I'm trying to design seminars that are not, they're not just on a piece of some esoteric literature from the ancient world, right? But they're also bringing things into the present, doing history of interpretation, so people can see how these ideas get shaped over time. And one book that we read um, in my, I taught apocalypses in my, um, in fall 2019, Apocalypse is always now, so it's always very pressing topic, always very um, timely. And one of the things we read was a book called Rapture Culture, which is by Amy Johnson Frycombe, which is a book about the communities of readers that have emerged around the series Left Behind, right? Which is a very popular book series, um, which frankly is not well-written. Right, if you ever pick up Left Behind, it's not good, right? And I say this knowing that people's tastes are different, right? People's tastes are different. And what I think is good is not necessarily what you think is good, but I got some lowbrow tastes, but I can tell you that Left Behind is just not well-written, right? It's not well-written, but the plot is interesting, right? The plot is good, um, but it's not well-written. And we read some of it in class and my students were, several of them had read it before, Right. And now they were reading it differently. and It was really kind of fun for them. But so Left Behind is a book that's not that good, but it has become the centerpiece. It and it's like 57 sequels or whatever have become the centerpiece of whole networks of reading communities. Right. Who use the book as a way 
to talk about things that are happening in their own life, that are happening in the political world, that are happening in church, right? To form meaningful connections amongst people that maybe they haven't done before. And so I think that this is really important. Kevin asked the question about what do we know about how you know, ancient people read these works. We just don't know that much, right? Because what we have preserved for us is the work of the elites, mm -hmm. right? Was the work of the elites almost, I would say 90% of the time. So we have elite authors telling people not to read these books or dismissing them as foolishness, right? We don't know how people read them, right? We have to kind of imagine a little bit, but it's clear that it does not have to be canon in order to be critically important, right? To one's sense of self and the world and how one fits into kind of the puzzling world, right? Or, mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to be canon in order to be a way to embolden yourself to have conversations you wouldn't have otherwise, right? And I think that the, the work that Amy Johnson Frycombe, I'm gonna mispronounce that name, but I just, this book was very meaningful to me when I read it on rapture culture. The work that she did about the way these reading communities have kind of emerged extra ecclesially, right? Outside of church and kind of, you know, met needs that aren't being met inside of church was really, I think, a, is a powerful counterpoint to thinking about, well, how do books that are non-canonical, that are apocalyptic, how do they work for people in their own lives? Why are people so attracted to them? So the phrases you used, it's such a nice phrase. You say apocalyptic is always timely. Oh, always. Because it's always about now. Well, right, but it's also every now mm -hmm can be frustrating and puzzling oh, yes. and can feel like what is going right. on. So I would imagine there's an enduring appeal to apocalyptic or something like it. You mentioned one uh, current instance of this, but being an expert on the genre, I wonder if that gives you a lens that makes you see things differently in contemporary discourse more generally, right? So do you see, instances of something like apocalyptic playing a role in contemporary political discourse, the contemporary ways that we try to make the world seem a little less puzzling and get to what the real truth is, right? Whether it's in conspiracy theories um, or in just misinformation or whatever. But then I also wonder, and this is related, is there something inherently religious about apocalyptic as genre? Okay, so yes and yes and yes. Right? <laughs> Perfect. Next. So no. I've got a question now. Um, no, no, I'm, no. Just I'm not done. <laughs> yes and yes and yes, the end. Um, so, oh, Kevin. So the past few weeks have just been so traumatizing, right? Like we've all been watching. Yeah. Um, did you guys watch the New Yorker video that got posted yesterday about that was extra footage from inside the it was footage that hadn't been seen before from inside the Capitol. And it included a prayer that mm. Capitol stormers who reached the Senate floor prayed in the Senate. Wow. The New Yorker article was called Among the Insurrectionists and the video was by Luke something. I'm so sorry, Luke, I forgot your last name. It's really powerful imagery. There's been a lot of work, well, I don't know if it's, it's yeah, there's been a lot of work or a lot of things written about Q, right? In particular right now, QAnon. There was that article in the Atlantic by Adrienne LaFrance on QAnon as like an American religion. 
um, I don't think that's quite right. I don't think it's quite a religion yet, but I do think that it meets some needs that religion often meets for people. And I do think it's a powerful example of apocalyptic ideology in our current political moment. I was reading an article mm -hmm. yesterday by Kevin Roos in the New York Times. These are the notes that I took because I wanted to get journalist's name right because I've just been so impressed by the just amazing journalism that's been happening right now. Yeah. But Kevin Roos profiled, um, this was in the New York Times, he profiled a woman named Valerie Gilbert, who's a QAnon meme generator. She's like a digital, he called her a digital soldier, right? Oh. And she said a couple of things, and this is a, someone who, the point, the point of the article was to show how Q is not going to go away anytime soon, right? That it was very, and you can't like argue people out of being in Q, right? By the way, I have tried really hard not to learn that much about Q. I really have. And I've just been, you know, now I've had to learn all this, you know, I've had to learn all this stuff about Q and I really resent it. But anyway, <laughs> so, you know, the idea is that you can't logic people out of Q, out of believing in Q, right? That it's fundamentally at its core, there's like a rejection of logic or a rejection of kind of enlightenment discourse about like reason and rationality and argumentation that is really powerful. And that is, that's part of at the core of Q. One the, the way that this woman was talking about why she got into Q was really struck a struck a ring a bell for me, right? First of all, this is a woman who went to elite schools. She went to Dalton. She went to Harvard. She lives on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, right? She is a well-educated person, and this. Um, article in, in it, she talked about how she started to read about Q and she started to learn more. And she said a couple of things. One of the things she said is the world just opened up in technicolor for me. Right. And she said it was like the matrix. Everything just started to download. Now, this is exactly what apocalyptic literature is trying to do for people. It's trying to open the world up for them, right, to unveil the true circumstances, true but hidden circumstances of the present. This is what Q is doing for her. It's opening up the world. It's like that scene in National Treasure where you got the decoder, Benjamin Franklin decoder glasses, and all of a sudden you can see the thing in 3D, right? This is what uh -huh. Q is doing for people, and that is what apocalyptic literature is trying to do, right? Mm -hmm. And then later in the article, she said, I am really good at putting symbols together, right? And this is exactly it, right? This idea that all you have to do is read the symbols. If you can read the symbols, then you can see it. And that's at the core of canonical apocalyptic literature, where you have mm -hmm. things, the text saying like, this calls for a mind that has wisdom, right? Like, knock, 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 this is a code. Here's the red flag, right? This is what it is. She says, I'm good at putting the uh -huh. symbols together. So I think Q is an example of, an apocalyptic ideology that is really grabbing people because it's saying there is more to the world than you can see, and it, but it's out there for you to find and we'll do it together as a group. And we'll mm. do it together as a group, right? She, you know, in these articles, there's this real sense that Q has provided a way for people to work together, right? To collaborate. Some people call it like, a multiplayer game, like it's like a multiplayer game, right? Like you're all working together to solve the puzzle. These are kind of the, this idea of working together, making friends, networking. These are sort of the things that religion tries to do for people is to connect them 
and give them a sense of purpose and mission. And this is what Q is doing for a lot of people. So while I don't think it's quite right to say that Q Anon is an American religion yet, right? I think that it is filling needs for people that were traditionally felt filled by religion. And it is exactly doing the kind of thing that apocalyptic literature that John of Patmos was trying to do on his island saying, listen, right? And, you know, hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. This calls for a mind that has mm -hmm. wisdom. The number of the beast is this. This is, this is it. So yeah, so apocalypse is always now. It's always now because every generation, every generation um, has an apocalyptic moment, I think. I really do mm -hmm. think, whether it be mm -hmm. like Hal Lindsey, Late Great Planet Earth, which was an example of like apocalyptic, you know, movement being propelled in a very specific way. We had the Herald Camping and the Judgment Day, just like in, what was that, 2011, we, Y2K, like every generation has these kind of, you know, social upheaval and because the world is so, it's difficult to know how to be in this world. An apocalyptic ideology gives you a way to be. Right. I just want to say that uh, for the record, I don't know if it will, this will make the final edits for the podcast, but your answer was so unbelievably good there that it seems like that was a setup and it totally wasn't. I just want to commend you. Well, it was you a setup for... because I set it up because I took notes on that article because I knew it. As soon as I read it, I was like, I have to talk about this. Um, I have to talk about this. <laughs> I'm glad I could be your straight yeah. man. Though. Well, and you know, the other thing is that yesterday there was this great thread, Ben Collins, who he calls himself on the dystopian beat. Like if you're looking for a Twitter follow, this is a good one. Um, <laughs> But like Ben Collins wrote a thread about how, like what will happen when on maybe on January 20th, Biden becomes president. Like Trump is not the president, right? There is no Q whatever, apotheosis, like what happens? And it's like, well, you know, apocalyptic groups have faced that in the past. You know, there's uh, the Millerites had their great disappointment and what happened? Some of it petered out and others got channeled into Seventh-day Adventism, what became Seventh-day Adventism, right? Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Some of it may peter out and others will just come up with a, you know, they will rationalize it. They will figure out a way for their reality to still be true, even mm -hmm. when, you know, this doesn't take place, when what, what they think should take place doesn't take place. And that's the story of time, right? When Jesus said he was coming back and he didn't come back, early Christians, early Jesus followers figured out how to interpret that, right? How to interpret that. And they did very successfully, right? They very successfully figured out how to interpret that. So we'll see, some of it will peter out and some of it will be channeled into something else. It'll be kind of interesting. Yara, it sounds like from what you're describing, uh, if you take this sort of long view, uh, you can go all the way back to early Judaism, early Christianity, and you see these relatively small groups who are experiencing discomfort, injustice, uh, and they finally turn to this sort of apocalyptic way of thinking. But you're also describing how that keeps happening over and over right. again. Uh, and if I'm hearing you correctly, uh, what I hear you saying is that uh, the size of the group that feels disaffected, that feels like there's, you know, this, you know, strong injustice uh, correlates with, you know, the size of the apocalyptic movement and, and maybe its staying power. And so when 
you think about uh, apocalyptic with maybe your religious studies scholar hat on or your sociologist hat on, how do you think about ways in which religious communities, governments, you know, other parts of society uh, can respond to apocalyptic? Mm, yeah, I don't have a great answer to the government part. <laughs> I think fundamentally, you know, sociologists of religion are always telling us that the key things to talk about are believing and belonging, right? Believing and belonging. And that these are key features of why people become religious, right? Stay religious, right? That it's not just believing, it's also belonging. Mm -hmm. So if I think that Q has provided for people and apocalyptic groups provide people with both of those things, something to believe in and a group to belong to, right? And as long as that people feel that they need those things and they're not getting them in other places, they will form, or form alternative groups, you know, the, be attracted to alternative uh, things. I think apocalypticism is baked into America's understanding of itself. I think it has been baked into it since Columbus, right? Since the Puritans, since the Jonathan Edwards, since all, since all of these times. I think we have a strong understanding. God is fulfilling his plans for humanity on this continent right? Mormonism, which is a true American religion, is very apocalyptic, especially at the beginning. It has channeled that apocalypticism into more long-term institutional ways of thinking. I do not think apocalypticism goes away, and I don't think that you can try to get it to go away. I think the question for church leaders, for people who want to see people less invested in fringe, fringe conspiracy, harmful apocalyptic ways of being, is to figure out what those people need that they're not getting in church or they're not getting at school or they're not getting in civic life. What are they not getting that lends them to believe in these very harmful Pizzagate, you know, conspiracies that lead to violence in the violence offline, right? And I don't have an, I don't have an answer for this. Right, I think what happened with Christianity, which was apocalyptic from the start, and maybe is still to its core, right? Some people think it is, is that it channeled that into a long-term institutional way of being. Uh, it kind of settled down into being the church in the world. And that's what happened in Mormonism as well, right? It mm -hmm. settled down into being a church in the world mm -hmm. without giving up its ideas about God's plan and destiny. Um, and I think that's what we'll have to say. I don't really have a great answer. And luckily, I don't make public policy. <laughs> I think that, you know, we're in a mass media era that is both, that is quite different from what we've seen before. And the channels of information and the channels of communication are different. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, you know, what, what that will mean going forward. I do think though, that there's that, you know, that line from Battlestar Galactica, by the way, I also wrote that line down on my notes where, you know, they say all of this has happened before and all of this will happen again. And yeah. I think that's right. I think that's right. And, you know, my favorite line, my favorite books of the Bible are Jonah and Ecclesiastes and Jonah is not relevant. So I won't talk about Jonah, but Ecclesiastes is relevant. So Ecclesiastes is always relevant. 
And there's my favorite moment in Ecclesiastes is in Ecclesiastes 3 in verse 11, where Kohelet says that God has like placed eternity in the hearts of man, but they can't figure out the beginning and the end, right? (laughs) And I think that's the fundamental human predicament. Like we have a sense of a whole, but we can't see how it all works. Like, and we're, and a lot of it is just trying to figure, well, what is the plot, yeah. right? And apocalyptic ideology gives people a way to see the plot and to yeah. put themselves in it. Yeah. Just a, a quick follow-up question about one of the threads from earlier that I didn't, I, I wanted to follow up on. Um, you mentioned earlier that there is a realism in apocalypse and it's, it's meant to be taken realistically. These are other worlds, but real nonetheless. Mm-hmm. I've been trying to puzzle through a little bit about what that adds, right? Because worlds can be puzzling and what you need is conceptual analysis, right? Mm-hmm. right? Like, let's just analyze this as carefully as mm-hmm. we can. And you might need to add to that an evaluative judgment, right? This is the way things are, we can understand it. and here's what's wrong that neither of those require any kind of realism about other worlds so i'm i i'm wondering whether um the possibility of reasonable hope mm-hmm. is what is missing if you don't have some kind of realism about this other world if that's true or if there's something else that this adds to these these ways of tackling the puzzlingness and the frustratingness of the world. Well, one of the things about Q is that I think what Q has really done is harness people's fears into hope, hmm. right? Into hope and a sense of being able to see something mm-hmm. in the future that is good, mm-hmm. right? I think that that is something that Q has done for people. Now, I'm not sure I fully understand the question. I mean, I think that apocalyptic literature, you could say, well, it's not realistic. There's all this like surreal stuff and there are beasts with like a million heads and all these things. And, and that's true, right? Um, it's not just so, allegory though, right? Yeah, so this is, no. the point is it's not just, this is a really florid way of making the evaluative judgments that we in any case could make straightforwardly Right. Rather, there's this sense that I'm describing the more fundamental reality. Right. No, the, what's really real. Right. Right. What's really real. Right. And absent that, I'm wondering, would would we still be left in a kind of nihilism because we can see all that's wrong and even name the wrongness of it, but on what basis would we have hope against okay. the impossibility of hope in? present circumstances right okay so now i'm going to speak really generally and like all necessary objections you know but there's some things that hope that you know problems in life that are universal that cannot be solved yet Mm -hmm. right like for example there are illnesses that cannot be solved yet right we can we have hope that they will be solved and some people do turn in this exact kind of instance instead of turning to religion for hope turn to science Mm-hmm. right we will solve this we will get through this i'm not thinking just of covid 19 i'm thinking about things scourges that we've had for a long time like cancer right mm-hmm. illness 
always threatens people's sense of the world, right? It threatens people's sense of the world. It threatens to break us, our endurance of the world, right? Our ability to endure it. And it threatens to break our analytic conceptualization of what should be, right? It threatens us. Mm -hmm. So some people have turned to religion, right? To not as cope. I don't think, I don't like the word cope because it sounds like a cop out, right? But as a way of making sense of illness and going through the trauma of illness, right? And going through the physical trauma and the emotional trauma of illness and looking to be comforted and be consoled and be supported, right? Mm -hmm. Other people um, look to, you know, look to science to say, okay, well, if we cannot solve this right now, like here's how we could participate in helping to solve this problem for other people. But the problem of illness and suffering does not go away, right? It does not go away. So there are human experiences that are universal that cannot be fully rationalized and that, you know, for some people can threaten their moral universes, right? If they believe that, you know, only this should happen to only this type of, which is a dangerous, horrible belief system that some people still hold, right? They believe that illness is a punishment, right? That can threaten when they or people who do not deserve to be punished in their worldview become ill. So death is another example of a universal human, spoiler alert, you know, (laughs) is a universal human experience that we cannot rationalize our way through dealing with. We could try, right? Whether it's the death of others or the death of ourselves, you know, this is this causes crisis for people religious ideology religious people can help you know make sense of it analytically but some people don't find hope in that and turn to other forms of support or other forms of thinking about this like for example the sense of dying for a purpose beyond yourself right a meaningful death like having a meaningful death in some way some other way so I think that fundamentally, and now I don't remember your question because I've been talking for so long. I think fundamentally, apocalypticism deals with universal human experiences. Is apocalypticism the necessary response to all those, right? Like, no, I don't think so. But I think it is a human response that makes sense in a monotheistic way and still fundamentally hits at something core to a lot of people, which is the sense that this cannot be all that there is. This cannot be all that there is because this often is terrible, right? And I think that apocalypticism tells you this is not all there is. This is not all there is. Just like this gal, Valerie Gilbert, found that in Q, right? This was not all there is. There is something else out there. I think I did not answer your question. No, No, I think it's really helpful. Yeah, no, I'm I'm cognizant of the time here. We've been uh, talking and talking and this has been fantastic. Uh, But before we end, uh, I want to ask you, Mira, what uh, we ask everybody uh, who comes on the podcast. And so uh, when you are thinking about apocalyptic, uh, what's your biggest question? 
I don't know what my biggest question about apocalyptic is. Um, sometimes I wonder what the world would look like if there was no book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I wonder that because I see the power of the imagery in the book of Revelation and the way it's given hope and comfort to so many and also the way it has led to truly horrific acts of violence. So sometimes I wonder like about the inevitability of the way that things turned out. Um, I don't have, I guess, a big question about apocalypticism per se. I think my bigger questions are about how people deal with injustice and what people's ideas of ultimate justice look like. Mm. I think that's the bigger question that drives me to be interested in apocalyptic literature. Also, these are fun texts, they're fun to read, right? <laughs> they have an actual, you know, they have a yeah. plot and they're fun to, right? But I think the fundamental questions that are always at the heart of all my research are about justice, right? Not about what, what do I think is ultimate justice, but about what is this text trying to tell me about what justice should be, mm -hmm. um, should look like. and and is it trying to subvert other people's notions of justice or is it trying to confirm other people's notions of justice? <laughs> so I think that my bigger, bigger questions are about justice yeah. and about reading. Yeah, that's great. That's so good. And it actually fits perfectly with all that you've been saying this whole conversation, right? It's evident that the work you do does shed light on that question. So. I would love to talk more with you, but we want to respect your time. So we will uh, end on this note. We try to give all of our guests a chance to make a public service announcement. And uh, the way we frame it is this, uh, what would you like people outside of your field, outside of this kind of work to understand about the sort of work you do or about its subject matter? Okay, so one thing that I would, this is about religion more broadly, mm -hmm. right? Not just about apocalypticism or about biblical studies. One thing I would like people to know is that just because you personally might think religion is stupid <laughs> or might hate religion does not mean it's not important for you to know mm -hmm. about. Hmm. <laughs> um, right? Just because you don't believe things, right? Does not mean you shouldn't know about them or understand them. And it also doesn't mean that they don't have an effect on your life, right? I also want to make a public service announcement that not everything about why people are religious has to do with be beliefs about God. Mm. And I, that can be really hard for my students to understand sometimes. Mm when I teach Judaism, for example, and I say, yeah, believing in God, like it's a central part of Judaism, but not all Jews believe in God. <laughs> what does that mean? And then sometimes it's hard. Here's another public service announcement. If you come from a predominantly Christian background, right, you might know, assume that most religions look like Christianity, where it's actually Christianity is a super outlier religion in a lot of cases. And in other religions, what you believe personally in your heart is not nearly as important as what you do. Right. And so I think those are some public service announcements that I would like to make. But the bigger one about like, just because you don't like religion, or you think this is dumb, doesn't mean it doesn't affect you. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't have to learn about it. Learn about it. 
Yeah, it's great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mira. This has been the Biggest Questions podcast, and our guest has been Mira Kensky. Uh, this has just been a great conversation. We hope you'll do it again with us uh, in the future, Mira. Thank you.